The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Take a copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have been systematically walking through this book. It's important that you know that. If you are with us um, for the first time today, this is our philosophy. We preach through books of the Bible. We preach verse by verse because we affirm that this is the very Word of God, that uh, this is not simply some collections of some opinions of some men throughout history, but we believe this is the very Word of God, that it is true, that it is what we need, um, that we sit before it and we learn of our God. Uh, We learn our way uh, of salvation. We learn how we can be saved. We learn how we can trust God. God. We learn of the one who is altogether trustworthy through this word. And so I say all that because it's particularly important that you understand today that I have not chosen this passage randomly. Uh, This is a particularly difficult passage for me to preach this morning. Uh, This is one of those passages, um, you'll understand when I read through it in just a second, that when we read it in 2013, it causes us to scratch our heads, and we kind of look at it, and we say, what? Is, is that saying what I think it's saying? Um, this is one of those passages we just as soon really not talk about. In fact, when I met with our deacons this morning, and we talked together and prayed together, um, what I told them was, if there was ever a passage that if I could choose to skip in my flesh, I would skip this one. Um, but God won't let me do that. Uh, he's called me to preach through, verse by verse, books of the Bible, and so here we are. Um, but this is one of those passages where we, we come to it and we say, really, what, what's up with that whole women cover your head thing in worship? I mean, what, is, what is that all about? And what does Paul mean when he talks about the head anyway? Is he talking about their literal head, or is it figurative? Is it, is it a metaphor for something else? Is Paul just being a chauvinistic pig of a man and looking down on women when he says that that woman is the glory of man and neither was man created for woman but woman for man? What is this about? This is what has caused many to write Paul off. Uh, I've had conversations through years of ministry with women who have come just angry at the Apostle Paul, uh, ready to tear him out of their Bibles and not want to read the Apostle Paul largely because of his stance here uh, on male-female relationships and how God has designed uh, our, our sex to determine how we function. Um, this morning, the sermon is entitled, Worship as Submission. Worship as Submission. And you'll see what I mean as we go through it. Now, let me read the text, and then we'll continue to walk through, and I'll give you a little bit of background to set things up. But start reading with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, let me pause right there before I go on. Uh, this doesn't sound right. This sounds out of place because Paul up to this point has been rebuking them over several things. So why would he now say, I'm commending you because you remember me, you're keeping the traditions? Well, this is kind of like your boss sitting down with you doing a performance evaluation. And he says a nice little something up front before he gets to the, 
But, and let me tell you this, and for the next several chapters, he's going to hammer them on one thing after another that they are not doing properly. Okay? Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, as I said, many people look at this, this passage and they say, I don't know, I think that probably was written to a particular group of people at a particular time, and therefore, eh, it probably doesn't really apply to us anymore. We should just skip over that and go to the next section about the Lord's Supper. But the reality is, I don't think we need to skip over these verses. I'm convicted that these are the words of God. And if God is sovereign, if He is altogether greater, if He is infinite in all of His perfections, don't you think that He would have known in 2013 that if this were going to be out of date, He would have removed it from the Word of God? But He has seen fit to keep it here in our Bibles. So I don't think we need to skip over this. I think we need to look at it. My conviction is that every word of Scripture is from God and necessary for us to have a better understanding of God and to function in the way that He has designed. It seems there were, in Corinth in this day, in that particular setting, there were some women in the church at Corinth who were attempting to blur the lines between gender. There were some women that were pushing those gender lines, and they were looking at teachings of Paul like like we read in Galatians 3, 26 and 28, when he says there, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is a wonderful passage of Scripture, but it was never meant to teach what they were saying that it meant. 
Here in that passage in Galatians 3.28, when the Bible says that all of us are sons of God through faith in Christ, men and women alike, what he's saying is that there, in that day and age, the son was the one who was the heir. Well, he has leveled the, 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 the playing field, and he has brought women to a status they never had before. And he says, you also are sons in this way. I have made you heirs in Christ Jesus. You get all of what I have promised, not just to the men, but men and women alike. You are heirs of Christ Jesus. And all the women in the room ought to say amen. And all the men in the room ought to say amen. That we are heirs of Christ Jesus that we have heaven coming to us, that there is glory that is unimaginable that is coming to us. We have life now in Christ and we have life eternal resurrected with Him because we are heirs. But what they were saying is they were taking passages like this and saying, it's not just saying that we are heirs. No, no, no. It's saying that we're already like this, that there's no male or female. Therefore, there is no distinction between the sexes. And wanted to blur the, the lines here of what was meant They were refusing to follow the traditional custom of wearing this this head covering in worship. And in the church in that day and age, there were some that were and some that weren't that that were pushing the envelope, wanting to blur these lines between male roles and female roles, and it was causing confusion and it was causing division in that particular church. And they had apparently written to him about this. He hears about this from them, from some, uh, either from Chloe's people or in this letter. He hears about what's going on, and he needs to put a stop to it. He needs to address it. And I would say to you that while wearing head coverings is no longer relevant in our day and age, there is a, an abiding principle that is. I've heard this passage taken out of context and used in ways that should never have been used. I remember as a youth minister early on taking a group of youth to a youth camp and some of the boys there in this large room filled with students from all over the southeast having hats on. And the the guy standing at at the podium at the front of the room said to them, guys, when you come in this room, take your hats off. If you don't believe that it's the word of God, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, I mean, I get the whole idea of we want to take our hats off when we come indoors. I know that that's a bigger issue for some than others. But I I remember reading that and saying, really? Is that what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about? Because here's what, if that really means that, that, that when men pray and prophesy that they should do so with their heads uncovered, then what he should have said is, hey, hey guys in the room, take your hats off and give them to the ladies because they need them. Right? That's, that's a misapplication of this text. There is a, an abiding principle here in this passage, and that principle is submission according to God's design. Submission according to God's design. Now, say the word submission. It's out there. Everybody can just take a deep breath. It's out there. Here are some common objections to submission. When, when a preacher stands and begins to talk about these roles of submission, some common objectives, uh, objections seem to be, how come it's only the women that are asked to submit? You're asking me to be a doormat. You're saying that I'm worth less than somebody else just because of my gender. This is just a way for men to control women. That's an outdated and antiquated teaching that was for a particular people at a particular time. These are all objections that we will deal with 
Not today. We will deal with them next week. I came to this passage and I was reading through and I so badly wanted to preach verse 2 through verse 16 and knock all of this out in one Sunday because I, I, I approached this with fear and trepidation, but God wouldn't let me do it. As I walked through it, there's more in verses 2 through 6 than I could possibly get through. But we're going to try. The first point I want to make to you is this. Submission is a great act of worship. Submission is a great act of worship. What does Paul mean when he says head? When he says there in those first few verses, particularly in verse 3, he says that um, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. What does he mean when he says head? Well, some would say this word means source, that it's where they come from. But we have over 50 different examples of extra-biblical literature, ancient Greek literature, where this formula is used, where it is said that, that such and such person is the head of such and such person. And in every one of those examples, it always means authority. It never means source. And so we come to this, and we know right off the bat that clearly Paul is saying that the head here is the authority. It would be nice if I could say to you that it means source because it would sort of take a little bit of the awkwardness off of me, but I can't do that. The Bible seems to be saying that there is an act or issue of authority and submission here. Three points that I want to make to you today. I want to show you that Christ brought glory by embracing his God-given role. In other words, Christ brought glory to his head The Bible says there in verse 3, his head is God by submitting to the will of the Father. The second point is this, that when men don't embrace, when men don't embrace their God-given role and submit to it, they bring great dishonor to their head. Who is their head? Christ. Third point is this, when women don't submit to their God-given role and embrace it and live in it, They bring dishonor and disgrace on their head, namely their husbands and ultimately God. And in the middle of it, they bring disgrace even on themselves. So let's look at this together. First, Christ brought glory to God by embracing his God-given role. Verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. This brings a big question to our minds. Was Christ not God? Is he not part of the Trinity? Is Paul here saying, when he says that the head of Christ is God, is he saying that Christ is somehow subordinate, inferior to God, and that he's not truly God? We know that's not what he's saying, because in other places, Paul affirms the deity of Christ. Instead, he is pointing to a greater reality that within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one being completely, equally God, that within the Trinity, they function in different roles. They relate to one another in different ways. The, the, the Son is not less God than the Father, but He functions in different ways. The Father's role in the Trinity is to decree. It is to command. It is to will. It's to lead. The Son's role is to carry out the Father's will. 
Now think about this. We, we see this all throughout Scripture. By leaving heaven and coming to earth and going to the cross, I would say that Jesus exercised great submission, wouldn't you? That in that moment, He didn't have to. He was in heaven. He was eternal. There had never been a time when Christ had not existed. He was worshipped by angels. Yet He came anyway. He submitted Himself to the will of the Father when the Father sent Him to be the salvation of all who would ever believe. I would say that that's great submission on His part. And in so doing, He brought great glory to His Father. We see this in John 17, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus is praying that great high priestly prayer before He is crucified. And He says there, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Who's he talking to? His Father. He's talking to God His Father. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In John 12, he goes on, or before this, he, he, he prays and he says, uh, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Who do you, but, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Imagine the submission that it took to the authority of the Father, the headship of the Father over him when he was in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, agonizing to the point of death. Imagine the submission that it took. Imagine the submission that it took to stay on the cross, to scream from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would imagine, I would say to you that there could, could never be a greater act of submission than what Jesus exemplified in the Father's will. In that moment, what if Christ would, would have looked at the Father and said, are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. Who, who do you think you are? I'm as much God as you are. I'm glad he didn't take that attitude, aren't you? I'm glad that he had this attitude of submission. It's what Philippians is all about when it says that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and hoarded and held on to, but instead he emptied himself. And that's what submission is, is it's emptying ourselves for the good of someone else at the direction of someone else. He submits Himself to the will of the Father. His submission brought me salvation. His submission causes me to glory in the sovereign will of the Father. Sometimes I sit, and I hope I never get over this, I pray that God would bring this to my mind more, but to think, God, why did You save me? God, why? Why? Why did you save me? There's nothing in me that is good. There's nothing in me that would cause you to want me to be one of yours. Why did you save me? The very fact that Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father causes me to glory in the sovereign will of the Father. To say, Father, thank you. I have nothing else to say. Father, thank you. Our worship is never louder, it's never more true than when you and I embrace our God-given roles by submitting to Christ our head. 
This is what Jesus is talking about when in Matthew 5, 16, he says in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Our worship is never louder than when we are submitting to our head. Let's move to the negative side of this. Verse 4. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. This is the second point. Men who don't embrace their God-given role bring shame on God. Namely, Christ. Why does Paul object here? This is a big question. Why does Paul object to men covering their heads in worship? Doesn't this seem just a little strange? If we're honest, we come to this and we go, this is just a little weird. You know, 2013, it's a little weird. Well, the reality is he objects to them covering their heads in worship because in that day and age, in that culture, that's what women wore. And so he's objecting to them covering their heads because in doing so, they would be portraying themselves as women. This would have been rare, not as, not as blatant or not as, as in the moment as these women who were pushing the envelope, but it could have been going on. It could have been some of these men pushing the envelope. And what would have been happening is these men would have been, in this case, refusing to be men. We live in a day where inside the church and particularly outside the church, it is becoming increasingly okay, celebrated, even encouraged for men to refuse to be men. We live in a day of the blurring of the gender lines to say that gender does not matter. That as long as we love one another, what does it matter if we're opposite sex or of the same sex or even if we're of the same species or whatever the case may be. We live in that day. So here's the abiding principle is that God has made men to be men, to function in such a way. We are called to be men. It's real easy to sit back, man, and complain when particular women take too much of a leadership role. Or they won't function according to the way you see their role in Scripture. They refuse to be led. But the reality is, what do we expect them to do when so many of us have refused to function in our role? When so many of us have refused to be men. Now, none of us in here, I don't think today, not that I can see anyway, are coming in here dressed like women. Do you remember how shocking it was years ago when, uh, when Dennis Rodman on the Chicago Bulls wore that wedding dress? Anybody remember that? Do you think today that anybody would bat an eye at that? No. It's happening all over the place. None of us are coming in here like Dennis Rodman wearing a wedding gown and, and, and saying, what's wrong with this, you know? Uh, I, I think if someone came in wearing, a, a man came in like that, somebody would say, Brother, um, come with me. we got to help you out. You know, I hope. And that's not so much what I'm talking about. What I'm saying here, and I believe the abiding principle here, is that we've been called to a certain role, and that role is to lead. In the church. In the home. In the family. In romance. In providing. In protecting. This is our God-given role as men. And when we don't, 
In the absence of leadership, others will step up. And that's what's largely happened. And we cannot blame oftentimes women for stepping up into roles that they were in some cases never meant to step into. Because men have not acted like men. and Men have not led. Man, somebody sitting here, a man sitting here, you may feel like your wife is disrespecting your leadership. She won't follow your lead. But in many cases, she would love for you to lead. You hear me? She would love for you to step up and lead. This is what is displayed in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Now, it's real quiet in here. Y'all okay? Because y'all are making me real nervous. Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 20 through 33 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And notice, that's not to every man. Submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, some men would say, see, she's supposed to submit to me and she won't. Have you ever thought that the case may be that you're not holding up your end of the bargain? It goes on and it says, Husbands, you love your wives. Not just in any way, but as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The reality is, husbands in here, some of your wives don't have, any, don't have any issue knowing that you love yourself. She just doesn't know that you love her. Because you nourish yourself, you look out for yourself, you're taking care of you, and she's left to fend for herself. And you wonder why she's not willing to follow your lead when you try to lead. It starts when you step up and say, I'm going to function in the role that I was designed to function in. I will love my wife as Christ loved the church. I want her to be holy. I want to serve her. I want to nourish her and cherish her. I want her to have eyes for no one else because she knows that I love her and her alone. Now, wives, this does not mean that you don't have to submit to him if he is not loving you the way he is supposed to. You're called to submit. And some of you are in terribly difficult circumstances. But you're called to submit. And men, this does not mean what you think it means. And we'll get into more of this next week, but this does not mean she is your slave. If this is your attitude, then you missed the way Christ loved the church altogether. Did Christ love the church as his slave? No. He became its slave. He laid himself down to love her. I wish I could get into more of that today, but we can't. We'll get into it next week. 
But do you see the connection? Men, when we embrace God's role that He has assigned to us, glory is brought to God. Glory is brought there because they look beyond us and they see the One who made us. Don't... Look, the other day I was out in public somewhere and, and uh, I was at the gym and, and uh, this guy in there, he said, yeah, I just got married a little while ago. I said, that's great. Me and my wife are getting ready to celebrate our 18th anniversary. And he looked at me with just shock on his face like, 18? Man, congratulations. You know, like, that's so rare. 18 years. And many of you have been married way longer than that. When the world looks at a husband loving a wife the way he's supposed to, they see a rare picture and it causes them to say, there is something different about that. And they see the God behind it. When we don't, men, embrace this, our families fall apart, our churches are divided, our children rebel, our wives go unloved, and God goes unglorified through our actions. This all reflects on our head, Christ. Men, embrace your role. We'll get into more of what that means next week. Third point is this. Women, women who don't embrace their God-given role bring shame on God and their husbands and even on themselves. Look at verses 5 and 6. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Um, In this particular culture, if a married woman uncovered her head in public, it could be read as a symbol of sexual availability. She could be saying intentionally or unintentionally that I'm single, I'm available, Uh, In fact, the most um, progressive feminists of the day, uh, prostitutes, would would shave their heads. And so this was a symbol. It was shameful for them to do this. But this is probably not what was going on here. These women were uncovering their heads, not, not shaving their heads, not really wanting to say, I'm sexually available, but they were looking at male leadership in the church in particular, and they were saying, why does it have to be men? They were rebelling against this male leadership. They were rebelling against what had been revealed in God's Word as God's design. And just as the men were refusing to be men, these women were refusing to be women. They wanted to cross the boundaries that God had set in place. And clearly, Scripture affirms that God endowed the man with the role to lead. I want to show you this, just just a little bit of background here. Before Eve had been created... God gave Adam the responsibility for tending the garden and for naming of all the animals. Have you ever thought about why did, why did God ask Adam to name the animals? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why didn't God just do that? I mean, was God like worn out at the end? He's like, I don't have time. I don't have the energy to name all these things I just made. You know, Adam, you take this. Is that what's going on? To give something a name is to demonstrate authority over it. I bring a pet home to our family. First thing we do is, what are we going to name this thing? It's ours. We will name it, right? We have a dog named Whiskers. I don't know. You know, 
I didn't, I didn't win out on that one, I don't think. God gives Adam the responsibility for naming the animals because in giving something a name, it is a way of demonstrating authority over it. So God gives to Adam authority over the earth. As his vice regent to represent him, to carry out his will. Remember, the Father is decreeing. And man is here going to follow that direction and carry out this. But he is leading under the authority of Christ. When God made Eve, when, when, uh, when, when he looks around and he says there's no one suitable for Adam, when God made Eve from Adam's rib, Adam got to name her. It says there in Genesis 2 that he looked at her and he said, Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman, for she came out of man. Now I would imagine probably the first time he saw Eve, he said more than that, but that's, that's what the Bible records for us, all right? Even though Eve was the first one to eat the forbidden fruit, who was it that God came looking for? Do you remember this? Eve's the first one to take the fruit. She gives it to her husband. They hide themselves because they hear God walking, and God doesn't say, hey, Eve, where are you? Instead, he says, Adam, where are you? Why? Because for some reason, he holds the man accountable for what happened. Even though Eve was the first to take it, the man is accountable because it was his responsibility to lead his wife. God clearly affirms his male leadership, that he has created men to have this role. If God had designed men to function, uh, if God has designed men to function in this way in roles of leadership, what about the women? What role has he designed for women? Well, Genesis 2, verses 20 through 22 gives us clues. He says there, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. It's a key word there. There's not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now that word helper is a word that means one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the one helped. So when you hear someone say, you complete me, cheesy line in the movies, there is an air of truth to that. That a woman, when a woman and a man come together in a married relationship, that God brings them together, he is to lead, but she is to come alongside as a completer. That where he is deficient, where he is weak, she comes alongside and makes up for that. That she doesn't lead him, but that she comes alongside and she helps him. The head of every woman, he says here, is man. Notice that the only time God says something is not good when he's going through the creation account. You remember as he creates new things every day, he says it's good. At the end of that day, it's good. At the end of that day, it's good. At the end of the day, it's good. The only time he says something's not good is when he looks and he sees Adam alone. And he says there's not a, a helper suitable or fit for him. That's meant for us to notice. It's not good that man be alone. So when God fashioned Eve, he did so from Adam's rib. The old, um, um, 
religious leaders, um, the rabbis of the Jewish faith, used to take this, this passage of Scripture and they would, they would teach that God took, uh, made woman from Adam's rib because he didn't want to take her from his head because if she took him from uh, his head, then she would be lording over him or ruling over him. He didn't take her from his feet because if, if he did, then, then Adam would be there to trample on her and just walk all over her. But instead, that God took Eve from his rib, from his side, so that she could be close to him, close to his heart, so that she could compliment him. Ladies, when you refuse this role to submit to God's role for you, to come alongside a husband, to serve him, to help him, to in some ways complete him, you bring shame on God by rejecting his design. You need to hear that and let that sink in. Because I don't care if you like me. Some of you will walk out of here today and you'll be mad at me. You can send me an email and you can call me. I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you. Um, But I don't care if you like me. Some of you need to hear that when you reject God's designed role for you, you bring shame on Him. Your issue is not with me, it's with Him. Don't shoot the messenger. Take it up with God. When you reject or refuse to submit this God-designed role for you, you bring shame on your husband. You know what you tell the world when you refuse to follow your husband? Oh, he's weak. He's not worth following anyway. The world looks at your relationship and says things like, well, we know who wears the pants in that family. You bring shame on your husband. And it was not designed to be that way. And lastly, you may think, well, at least I'm standing up for myself. Nobody's going to run over me. The reality is when you reject God's role that he has designed and assigned to you, you bring shame on yourself. People look in and, and they don't see a good and godly woman who wants to follow the Lord. Instead, they see one that is the opposite of humble one who's on the throne of their life. One who makes a fool of themselves quickly. You're really just bringing shame on yourself. Now, unfortunately, this is where I've got to close. Which means that I have left a lot of questions unanswered. And I am truly sorry about that. Um, we will get to them next time. Next, next week, Lord willing, if we're back here and he doesn't come back, we will get to these questions. Those objections that I gave you at the front of what often is said when we talk about talking about submission, we'll get to those next week. And I'm going to show you largely what submission is not next week, okay? But until then, let me leave you with this question. Women and men, if it was not too much for Jesus to humble himself and submit himself to the role that God designed for him, should we consider it too much to humble and submit ourselves to the role that he has designed for us? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that this passage is in the Bible. Lord, you know all things. You know what we need. If it were up to us, we would have a very limited diet. 
we would be malnourished. But you have seen fit to give us a buffet that is endless of what we need. God, I pray that you would take this this passage and the way that it's been preached and God, let it be heard with humility. Let us receive it, God, as people who are not Lord really of anything. That you are God, that we are not. That you are King of kings and Lord of lords and one day every knee will bow to you. And God, you just so happen to have in your grace brought us to that moment now where you have changed our hearts and called us to willingly bow our knees on this side of that judgment. And God, we say thank you. Lord, speak to us. Help us to receive it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to invite you to reflect on what's been said. Um, Maybe to just take a deep breath and think about all the things that just were spoken from here and read. Think about this text. Spend some time talking to God right where you are. Don't be afraid to take your questions to Him. If there's something that He's calling you to do in response, you know, every, every time the gospel's presented, every time the Word of God is taught, it always calls for response. It always calls for us to obey. And so if there's something that in particular God is calling you to do in response to obey to this message, and we want to give you the opportunity to do that, to be free to do that, that may be able to transpire in this room before we adjourn this meeting. But it may be something that needs to go on after this. It may be the start of something where a husband goes home and just gets on his knees before his wife and just says, Honey, I have failed to lead you the way I should. I have failed to love you the way Christ loves the church, and I just need you to forgive me. It may be that a wife needs to go home and sit down with her husband and say, I have crossed over the lines and I've been wrong in doing that. And I need you to lead me and I want to submit. I'm not going to do that perfectly, but with the help of God's grace, as we seek to follow His word and His will, let's work on this together. It could be that some of you in this room, even though this was not a, a real gospel call to salvation, it could be that God's moved even in this. Something has been said about Christ submitting to the will of the Father and coming and taking your place on the cross. Something's been said and it's caused you to know, I'm lost and I need to be saved. And you've, even in the midst of this sermon, you've trusted Christ and you need to make that public today. Maybe you're here today and you've just been putting it off, but you say, this is the place where God's leading me to join. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do in obedience, in response to this message, don't sit and harden your heart. and Say yes to Him. Obey Him today. Let's respond in worship.
This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.